Welcome to Reading Between the Reels. I'm Matt Leader. And I'm Craig Dickinson. Today on the show, we are breaking down Fight Club, the uh, 1999 film by David Fincher. It's based on the book by uh, Chuck Palahniuk. That's a hard name to say, but I think I made it through. Uh, Matt, what do you think about Fight Club? What are some of your overall thoughts of the movie Fight Club? So... You know, Fight Club is an, a very interesting film, and it's it's a film that I think is very fun to kind of take an analysis stab at. Uh, there's so much going on. It's it's kind of a frenetic film. I want to say it's close to two-hour mark, but it doesn't feel like it. Like, it mm-hmm. moves at a very quick pace. There's a lot going on. It's one of those films that you, after you watch it, you want to go back and rewatch it. Um because of the twist, right? Uh, that Tyler Durden and the uh, nameless protagonist is, right. is they're really the same person. Basically kind of two halves of the same psyche. And I you know that that's obviously adds interest to a rewatch. It adds uh, things that you're kind of you know you're looking for those kind of signals. you're looking for the little bits here and there. and you know they're they're sprinkled all throughout. Um, at the same time, it's also like an interesting film from like a message standpoint because there's different ways you can read it. And I think that depending on how you read it, it could be both good and bad. Uh, you know, there's there's stories every once in a while, or at least there used to be not as much anymore because it's kind of sunk out of the, you know, the, the public discourse a little bit. Uh, but, you know, fight real fight clubs popping up because people were trying to imitate Tyler Durden and stuff, which I don't think Fincher wants people to do. <laughs> no, that's not the point of the film. So, you know, that, but if people can read it that way, it does, you know, bring up the question of, of why, why people, you know, decide to read it that way. And I've got some thoughts about that, that, you know, I'll get to later, but uh, oh, I mean, overall, it's, it's really a very interesting film. Uh, and I, and I enjoy watching it um, every once in a while. What about you, Craig? Yeah. Uh, first, real quick, I had to look it up because I, I knew it was a little bit over two hours. It's actually two hours and 19 minutes. And it's, it's again, it does not feel like that. It feels <laughs> like maybe it's like lean 90, but yeah. it is. It, there's a lot packed in it and it moves. Um, I am happy to say that I didn't see this movie when it first came out. I think it was 2001 when I saw it. I'd been out for a couple of years and I did not know anything about the twist. Somehow that it, I mean, it's an earlier time. You know, it's definitely pre Twitter pre-Facebook, pre a lot of that stuff, pre-social media, really. And so that slipped through for me. And so I was legitimately blown away by it. But I also remember really enjoying even the beginning parts when he was talking about Planet Starbucks and all the consumerism and that message. I mean, that's the one that the main one that I take away, you know, there's that great line that I was going to mention later, but I mentioned it now, uh, where Tyler says, the things you own end up owning you. I was already on board before any of the split personality and all of that madness happens, which just takes it to a whole other level. So I just thought like this, and I still do, this film is just, it's a satire. It's brilliant. It's brilliant in, 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 in the way that it pokes fun at, at certain things. It's, it's kind of a dark comedy from a certain point of view. I think it's hilarious in a lot of ways. And, and yet it's also kind of seditious and insidious in the way that it's funny. And it strikes this really weird balance. And, you know, Fincher's films are not typically funny, 
or had been up to this point. I mean, Social Network has some really funny stuff in it too. But, but they're not comedies. They're not comedies, you know, per se. Um, Seven's not a comedy. No. Right. And that was, you know, right around the same time. Uh, so he's, you know, he's the and Alien 3, also not funny or light. And so it's interesting that you have from, from this guy that this is kind of the first, oh, okay, there's, it's kind of tongue in cheek here. There's, you know, some things that I have to kind of take with a grain of salt and like, oh, am I supposed to laugh? Because that was really weird and kind of violent, but also funny. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of plays on, on a lot of those things. Um, but I, 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 like I said, I've just always enjoyed it. And, I, you know, the fact that you have the narrator who doesn't actually know what's happening, that concept has always been something that's fascinating to me. So uh, I love that a lot. So as far as cinematography, the the first thing that really popped out to me on beginning the rewatch was um, the the grain in the film. It's mm. very grainy. Uh, and now I can't, I want to say 1999, it was probably shot on actual film. I, I don't know that for sure. Yeah, I believe that it was. I think, you know, Attack of the Clones is kind of like the, in 2002, is That's like true. the first fully digital one. And yeah, it is intentionally grainy oh, in, yeah. in my research. And I saw that they absolutely made this film as dirty as they could right. in a lot of ways. I mean, even at one point you see like the, the film uh, holes. For yep. the, for the the celluloid like the reels yeah the, yeah the real holes where it, yeah. it like kind of shakes and stuff and um, there's that kind of meta commentary where this is talking about that kind of uh, kind of dirty side of of humanity right that consumerism and then that's reflected also in the film itself so that was the first thing because it it just it doesn't look crystal clear <laughs> right like there's there's a lot of films nowadays where it's like it's 4k uh even old films look pretty stunning you know when they're upscaled into 4k uh and you know you watch a movie from the 80s or something and it's like it's grainy but they had had no choice right when they upscaled it that's just one of the the byproducts mm. of it but it's like this no this was because like attack the clones you bring that up uh, even Phantom Menace, those are very clean-looking films. Film, I can't even recall any film grain in those films, you know, not off the top of my head. And then this film comes along, and it's just like, it's gritty. You know, the actual picture is is gritty uh, and dirty. Um, and, uh, like, I thought that was, that was really interesting, along with uh, the use of the uh, CG, or CGI, right? Where it's um, when he talks about certain things, using the uh, copier or the the stove, and, and like the camera will artificially kind of zoom in. Uh, I think it happens with like a garbage can too, and um, it's like that doesn't look great. <laughs> it's not <laughs> aged super well, but it's like a very interesting use of the camera. Yeah, and it's, the film starts that way too. Yeah, you know, like this extreme close up of his head, and and yeah, I had yeah. that too about the the narrator's kitchen. And it's interesting that you have kind of um, dry, almost boring exposition about what you know. He's explaining how the, the explosion is going to happen, but it's it's visually captivating, mm-hmm. you know, because the camera is well, the the digital camera, right? It's right. not an actual camera. It's like you said, it's CGI. It's moving so dynamically. It comes through there and 
So I had a question while, while you bring this up. How, what format did you watch this on? Did you watch this on DVD or, did, or digital? Uh, or? On digital. Yeah. Okay. Because I had the DVD. I bought the DVD almost immediately after I saw it. Um, tons of great features. I got the, the, the two-pack one that has all the, the great double fe- uh, extra features on it. And I've been toying with the idea of upscaling to Blu-ray. And now I'm like, maybe I don't want to be Blu-ray. <laughs> <laughs> kind of defeating the purpose uh, of this film. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's a lot of interesting, I thought interesting cinematography in this. We, we know we talk about the desaturated color a lot with mm. like Snyder's films. That's very, lots of shadows in this film too. Like this could have been, this almost looks like a Snyder film. You know, I'm sure this is probably one of his influences. He, he was still coming up at the time. Uh, I also had the shaky screen kind of sliding over. Love that too. Um, as he's talking and you know what he's talking about at the time too is it's the, you're not your job. You're not how much money you have in the bank. So it's just very much, I won't read the whole thing because there's an F-bomb in there, but <laughs> it's very much like I'm showing you that what you think is not real. Mm-hmm. You know, I am changing your per, your perception on things. And so I thought that was a, a brilliant use of of dialogue and and visual there to match that up. Well, and it also ties into the earlier scene when uh, the narrator is talking about Tyler's job at the movie theater, how mm-hmm. they'll like splice in things into other films. Yep. And like, it, it, that's what it reminded me of when I saw it this time was it feels like Tyler is, and there's a lot of like fourth wall breaking too. Very much. <laughs> and so it's like that's a moment when Tyler is kind of speaking to the audience and he is splicing in like a little piece of his own personality, uh, his own monologue. Uh, but to the audience. Yeah. And of course we have to mention just a little quick snippets of, of Brad Pitt early in the film before, uh, before it's, you know, before he actually meets quote unquote meets uh, our narrator. And I remember seeing that and not, I think I might've missed the first couple. And I wanted to say too, that, you know, this film has a lot of foreshadowing and on, on subsequent rewatches, it's kind of obvious where it's going, but it's so clever. I don't care. Mm-hmm. I just enjoy the ride. You know, some, some movies where they have a twist ending, you're just like, yeah, it's already spoiled for me. But this and, and, and you know, movies like Usual Suspects, for instance, like I could watch, I don't care because I want to watch all of the, you know, Six Sense is another one, you, the clues that you've left for me. So that's another interesting thing just with those flashing shots. I also had the, uh, I really enjoyed when he does the chemical burn. And he's like, I'm trying not to think about sear, flesh, and it just, flashes quickly mm-hmm. fire and then his hand yeah <laughs> just brutal um some some great stuff so also there is some really interesting kind of movement with the camera we mentioned earlier the um the explosion kind of exposition i really like the first time we meet tyler brad pitt's character is he's on the escalator or kind of the, the and the camera swings by um from norton and then follows him and he talks about like if you She'll wake up in a different place. Maybe you're a different person. They're like, that's another one of those great foreshadowing things. And uh, to build off of that, I think I'm pretty sure it was a video by Nerdwriter who kind of took a look at a lot of David Fincher's work and a lot of the cinematography. What he noticed was that the camera would actually match the cadence, the rhythm of whichever actor it was following. And so I, I really kind of watched for that this time. And the camera is very dynamic. It it is moving quite a bit. Like you know, we we talked about um, Lucas's uh, A New Hope a while ago, uh, yeah. and one of the things we brought up was that it's very stationary, <laughs> right? The camera is kind of set, and it might like uh, 
pan or, or tilt a little bit, but it, it's kind of stuck in one spot. And this camera is, is moving all the time. A lot, yeah. And, um, and when you, if you pay attention to the movement of the camera, a lot of times it is kind of synced up with what the actor's doing, whether they're running or walking, whatever it might be, even just standing up, something like that. Uh, the camera does tend to match, try and match that cadence, uh, which is very interesting because uh, I don't think off the top of my head, a lot of directors do that. This, this, I mean, for this, it was constant. It was throughout the whole film uh, with that, that moving camera. Yeah. Two of, two of the most, I think, iconic shots in this film. There's um, of course the one where uh, Tyler gives the rules to fight club and it pans around that like that's in all the trailers and then you have right before that you have this great tracking shot of them walking into the basement for like the first time that you actually get to see that and it's very dynamic all the way through and that's i, you know, I think is a good example of what you're talking about is we're walking with them into the basement uh, as that's going on i did want to give a shout out to um the cinematographer his name's uh jeff Cronoweth. And he's actually the son of the guy, Jordan Cronenworth, who did Blade Runner. So that's going to, he comes from good stock for sure. I had also done, he did the social network as well. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl, a bunch of stuff for Fincher already. Um, And so, yeah, I, you know, it seems like I need to go recheck out some of those films again and just kind of compare and contrast, you know, what this guy does. Because I really like his work. It's very, like we said, dynamic. Anything else in... uh, cinematography that you want to mention i just had one last thing yeah go ahead um just that there's the staging is really interesting in that you do not it's more like what you don't get because you don't get rad pitt in two shots or any over the shoulder shots where he's talking to the narrator because of course he's not actually there and then we get a lot of replacement shots i think specifically of the one um, outside the bar for the first time where ed norton hands the, the beer bottle uh, to Brad Pitt in the first time we see it. And then we see it again and it shatters because he's obviously not there. So you have all these duplicate shots that they've done, uh, which I thought was just a great way to just hammer home. Yeah, he's not real. He was never there. <laughs> well, he is there, just not in the way that we think he is. <laughs> Excellent. Yes, that's right. Get it. Change your perceptions, man. Cool. All right. Well, so what about sound? I, I think the like obvious thing is is all the narration you know, it's interesting in some ways. It reminds me a little bit of um, ancient Greek theater, which I ended up studying a little bit, a tiny bit in college, how you have the chorus and who, who are characters within the play. And it, it, it ends up reminding me a little bit about that because in a lot of ways, even though we follow Ed Norton, who's the the narrator, like he's, he's really the point of view that we are getting this story from. In a lot of ways... Tyler kind of takes over like he's kind of the focus point like even for Ed Norton towards the end of the film it's it's like where is Tyler <laughs> who is Tyler yeah. and so you know a lot of our mind and and Ed Norton's mind are focused on Tyler but we still get the narration from from Ed Norton and so it it's just honestly it's it's like a weird combo and not weird in a bad way just different uh, that you know, you have this narrator who is clearly the point of view character, and yet the story is and is not about him, and mm-hmm. and you get a lot of that just from that narration, um, just to the audience, right? That fourth wall breaking um, narration, 
And I don't think I would want this in every film, but I think it's like, it's, it's refreshing in this film because it is so different. Yeah. I love that you said that. I mean, that this, that's why I enjoy this movie so much. I think too, is because it's unique that it's, which is interesting because I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm biased, but I would have thought that it would, there would have been more movies that were kind of try to ape this style because Hollywood, like many other industries, you know, kind of just is a copycat thing, but um, there's still, there's not another movie like fight club out there. Mm-hmm. Some things that I noticed this time that I'd never noticed before. Um, there were some great sound effects, uh, starting with the soap bubble sound right before the opening credits, which I'd missed before. I was like, okay, that's fun. That's just a little Easter egg. Uh, I enjoy the fact that they kept this movie relatively cleaner than they could. I mean, it's it's not a movie for kids. And so a clever use of the the single audio clip from the adult film, instead of showing it, just so we get to watch the reactions of the people. Which is pretty classic, uh, and I also really enjoyed the uh, the sound coming in and out a couple of different times. There was kind of an echoey one after he's been fighting for a while, and his boss tries to talk to him. And also, you have this where he's beating the tar out of Jared Leto's angel face character, and just coming in and out, and just kind of like like Tyler, you know, he's Tyler narrator, same guy, kind of like he's coming in and out of um, awareness, I suppose, would be a way I put that. Yeah, um, and I would add that there were a lot of moments that sounded really echoey. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of kind of echoey dialogue. Um, uh, both both Ed Norton, Tyler, uh, the boss, uh, Ed Norton's boss. Um, and that really struck me as like, that That was something that stood out as something I did not remember from the, the from previous viewings. And... I'm not sure if there's anything. <laughs> I don't want this to become like a uh, the English teacher says the blue curtains represent sadness or anything. Sometimes they're just blue. And sometimes the curtains are just blue, um, and it, it could be as simple as that. Where it's like they're fighting in basements. It's accurate, right? Mm-hmm. That, sure. But then also, I I was thinking like, it, but it's a choice, right? It's a choice, Absolutely. just like the grittiness, uh, the film grain. And so I'm like, okay, well, if it is a choice, then, you know, that's that's kind of a uh, an audio, a verbal muddying of the sound, very similar to this, the film grain, right? Where it's not clean. It's not clean audio that's coming through. It's not perfect. It's not a uh, sound booth recording. Or if it is, they've added that distortion, right? But it's there. And like they very much could have very clean audio if they wanted to. I have no doubt of that. So, you know, that's that's just another moment for me of like taking the actual film itself and uh, metaphorically dirtying it up, rubbing mud on it to make it as imperfect as, you know, it can be in an artistic sense. Yeah, I, love, I think that's absolutely a, a legitimate reading based on based on everything else. So I, I would absolutely go with that. I did want to ask what you thought about the music for this film. Not what because, I would expect. Like, yeah. <laughs> I've seen it several times. So it's like, I, sure. I know what to expect, but it's, it's not, it's a little surprising. Yeah. See, I would agree. Um, the dust brothers um, who are typically music producers, they worked with, with Beck and the beastie boys. And my favorite little tidbit was that they're the ones that produced the hit version of Mbop. That's awesome. 
Um, because that's ironic that that's so cheesy and like this is so not. Um, but yeah, you have this kind of like dance techno trip hop thing, which was big late '90s. I remember even you two kind of got into that. That was a big thing, Prodigy and all right around that time. I was in college at the time, so I remember. Um, it's not used that much. It's actually kind of minimal mm-hmm. score in this one. Uh, it's used a little bit more for momentum, I would say, through exposition. Some of those scenes where, again, we go back to the scene with the explaining how the explosions can happen. There is some kind of dynamic music kind of moving you through that. But what I thought was that in a lot of places, it's kind of ironically mellow. Like the first time the big group starts outside the bar, it's not an action type of music. It's really, <laughs> like I said, it's kind of jazzy. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's subversive too. It's all just kind of just playing with you. Yeah. And I, I think you described it uh, as, as good as I could have. Like um, surprising in the sense is like, that's also the same thing with we're, what we're talking about with the, the film grain, the, the equiness. It's not necessarily what you would expect going in, but also like that's the whole movie. Like that's the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. So it, it all kind of fits that like puzzle pieces all are coming together to kind of, like I said, it's a, it's a weird film, but it all works. And I think that music is just another little piece that's used pretty sparingly, but effectively in those moments. So as far as performance goes, um, I want to say that I really enjoyed all three of the leads. I thought, I'm a big fan of Brad Pitt and Ed Norton have been forever. Hello, Bottom Carter is fantastic as well. They're all really charismatic in this film and you can't take your eyes off any of them. And I think what's really interesting is that they're all horrible people, but I'm kind of enjoying being, spending time with them. And I think that's a whole other level. Like, like who's the hero of this film? I mean, I guess the narrator, cause he's a protagonist, but he's not a good person. No. And at best, I think you could say he's tragic. <laughs> sure. Like yeah. I, have, I have sympathy for him, but yes. he's he's not a hero. He's not, you know, he's the protagonist, but he's not a person you would look up to. No. And I did find this great quote from from Ed Norton too, because um, we talked a little bit. You mentioned earlier how kind of Tyler's kind of taking over the film the more, the more it goes in, and this is what Ed Norton said. He said we decided early on that I would start to starve myself. Literally, not eat, right? As the film went on, while Brad Pitt would lift and go to tanning beds, he'd become more and more idealized as I wasted away. And you do see that the longer the film goes on, like Norton's appearance becomes more disheveled, like his clothes are all wrinkly, his hair's kind of must. He's obviously got bruises and cuts from fighting. And Brad Pitt is just, you know, the idealized version of Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're they're charismatic in the sense of being like magnetic. Like Mm. when Tyler goes off on his little rants, I was glued to the screen. Yeah. And, and, you know, part of that is there are things like the consumerism that I think, you know, people understand and kind of, um, they kind of agree with that. Right. There's other parts that, uh, that, you know, you don't obviously, but the performance itself is just, it's its very magnetic where you don't want to leave. And with the pace of the film, you're jumping to, to, you know, scene to scene to scene to scene where these actors are really, you know, you talk about like chewing, you know, dialogue, chewing scenery where these actors are up there and they're just, you know, their presence is kind of felt. 
And I think the three main uh, actors are all fantastic. It's it's one of the better acted films, I think, because it's so weird. You kind of need that magnetism. Because mm-hmm. if you have someone who's not performing well, I think the film kind of falls apart between those three, right? Yeah. If, if those three aren't at the top of their game, I think that kind of throws a hurdle for the film because it's so different. So you mentioned how magnetic... Uh, Tyler is Brad Pitt's character. Every time that we see him on screen, some of the things that he says, you just have to listen. Was there anything? Because that's what I had mostly for for dialogue. Was pretty much everything that Tyler Durden said. Was there, did you have one in particular <laughs> or two that you had that you wanted? I mean, I already mentioned the, you know, the things you own end up owning you, which I think that's the film in my my mind. That's the film in a nutshell. But yeah, um, um, did you have anything else that you wanted to point out? You know, it's it's one of those movies where there's a lot of lines that that you could point out. So I wanted to just not necessarily talk about one particular line, but more of like the story as a whole and like what it was talking about. But were there any lines that you, um, that you chose that you, that really, that you really enjoyed? Well, I always enjoyed the, and I like to quote the, we are the all singing, all dancing crap of the world line. You're not a unique snowflake. I always like that. But the one that really drew my attention this time, and it's a little bit longer, but I'm going to read it because it's fantastic. Where he says, he says, man, I see in Fight Club the strongest and smartest men who've ever lived. I see all this potential and I see it squandered. God damn it, an entire generation pumping gas, waiting tables, slaves with white collars, advertising as us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate so we can buy shit we don't need. We're the middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'll all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. We're slowly learning the fact, and we're very, very pissed off. Yeah, so that's that's actually one of the lines I wanted to talk about. So <laughs> Yeah, let's, let's unpack that one because I think that's still super relevant. Well, and I, I think what's interesting is when you take different lenses to this film, and this is what I was kind of talking about early on, is that like this is a film that's ripe for analysis. I think there are films where there's they're entertaining, they're well acted, they're well written, but they're not, you know, it's it's pretty straightforward as far as message, right? And I honestly do not know which direction Fight Club is necessarily pointing. And I and I don't think anybody really knows. That's that's kind of my theory. So, you know, I, one thing that grabbed me was, um, okay, so if I'm going to do this, what are some different lenses that you could like look at this film through? One of the first ones that popped into my head was like Marxism. Mm-hmm. And I am by no means an expert in this. <laughs> this was done with some internet research. So, you know, forgive me if, if we have Marxist listeners and I get any of this wrong, but basically what I understand, it's, it's basically class warfare, right? You've got the mm-hmm. bourgeois and the proletariat and you have, so it's upper and lower class. And the way that Marx saw this was there's a constant struggle. There's a constant fight. There's constant violence because the bourgeois are oppressing the proletariat. And so that line right there, when he sees an entire generation pumping gas, waiting tables, slaves with white collars, it's hard not to see that as that class warfare of basically like there is an entire generation of people who are being held down. Um, and, you know, consumerism is is part of that. 
Marx said that religion was the opiate of the masses, right? So it was a tool from the bourgeois to control the proletariat. And in this case, in Fight Club, I really think it's consumerism as the opiate, where at the beginning of the film, Ed Norton has like the catalog and he's constantly purchasing little things, right? Yep. And he's trying to make his house look like the pictures from the catalog. And that's basically what he lives for. I forget the exact line, but it's basically like he was just living for the next purchase, right? Mm -hmm. That is that painkiller. That's the, the opiate. Uh, and if there's one thing that this film has, it's that kind of ennui, that malaise of like boredom and like dissatisfaction, which is what Tyler's referencing, I think, in that in that the Great Depression is our lives line, right? So he's basically Ed Norton is kind of a proxy for the proletariat where he is like oppressed, depressed. He's me self-medicating. Tyler Durden is the personification of that revolution, that fight against the bourgeois by going after the credit card companies, the, the banks, mm -hmm. and trying to level the playing field and to make people equal again. And I think that's a potential reading. <laughs> sure. I, I, I doubt that's what Fincher or uh, Chuck Palnuck, the author, intended. <laughs> I just don't quite see that. But that's, you know, it's hard not to see some of that reflected in the story of, of Fight Club for me. Yeah, to me, that goes back to what you mentioned earlier, too, about people's, like, starting up fight clubs. Yeah. Right, where it's that same kind of thing, like, take pieces of it. And I think that really, the way I read it is that Brad Pitt's character, Tyler Durden, is not set up as being correct. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there are there are certain things that he says that, and that's one thing I had for for later on, but now it's perfect time to talk about it. Is that he is right in the fact that the things you own end up owning you. He is right in saying it's only after we've lost everything that we're free to do anything from a certain point of view. Mm -hmm. That he is trying to push his other self into this place where. You don't have to be free or you don't, you can be free. You don't have to be tied down yeah. by the things that you think you have to be tied down from. But where you start, when he takes it to, you know what, I'm going to force everybody else to have my same mindset because like you just said, I'm going to just, you know, blow up the credit card companies and set everybody back to zero. That's when you start to get into some dangerous territory, right? That's where you get this, the cult of project mayhem. Mm -hmm. We have all these people that are, trying to they're trying to find themselves all yeah. brought up on we i mean that's very much what it is you know these people are all it's kind of hero's journey for all these people and they're just trying to find this self-actualization figure out what they want to do with their life instead of being you know how to determined for them right and that's the message that i did i that i think that's it gets definitely lost in the weeds i think there's, there's <laughs> yeah. so much going <laughs> there, there's a ton going on right there's a ton going on but i think that's kind of where Ed Norton's character kind of ends the film with, right? Yeah. Like he doesn't want to blow up the credit card companies. He wants to be free of those things. Right. And I think even on a subconscious level, clearly he wanted to be free. That's why he created the alternate identity. Um, and then at the, he seems to be kind of at peace at the end because he has achieved that level, but also at least tried to stop you know, the, he has a conscience, whereas Tyler does not. <laughs> which which feels like very zen. Like, yeah. 
this kind of idea of like detachment and, yeah. and kind of like the the whole Jedi, like, you know, having no attachments to. Right. And so <laughs> I, I do particularly like the line um, about self-actualization and the other members of Project Mayhem, because even though, you know, we have our three kind of main characters, Project Mayhem members are a big part of this. And I do absolutely think that there are a bunch of lost men who, for me, it felt like, am I just going to be like a valet? Am I just going to be a waiter my whole life? Like, is that it? Is that all there is? And another thing that it kind of struck me as, um, you know, a possible another lens to look at this is more from like a, a feminist lens of like toxic masculinity in the sense that if, if you define toxic masculinity as men cannot express emotion except through, uh, like, violence. Like, that's the mm -hmm. only way men are allowed to express emotion. And you get that when, like, one of the first scenes when he meets Meatloaf. <laughs> right. And, like, Ed Norton is so depressed and he just wants to feel something. But the yep. only way he can do that is through a, a safe place of going to these... Um, I don't know what what do you what did they call them self help groups self help groups yeah, yeah. And, and until Tyler comes along and Tyler expresses his frustration through violence through the fight clubs and uh, eventually other members from the self help groups uh, at least Meatloaf come in and he's like oh man it's so much better the violence is so good and mm -hmm. this idea of like and you get the sense like Brad Pitt is that kind of ultra masculine guy right sure. And you brought up the fact that, you know, he becomes more idealized as the film progresses. And I think there's a certain attraction of that, like, rebel without a cause type thing, right? Where it's like, that's that's cool. And that's where I think people get mistaken, where it's not the violence that you're supposed to, like, emulate. It's not the violence you're supposed to look up to. And that's the sense of, like, that there the only way that Tyler expresses his frustration is through violence. That's toxic. That's not mm -hmm. good. <laughs> That's the part that you don't want. Now, the rebelling against um, society and, and trying to find meaning, that's positive. That's good. Just the way he chooses to express it through that, that, that violence is not healthy. So there's, I, you know, there's another reading that I thought might possibly work. And, um, I don't know. This, <laughs> that's kind of where it's like, this is such a weird film that you could read it different ways and know, could be correct. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was thinking of something while, while you were talking too, that I was reminded of um, where you have all these men, there's like, am I going to be stuck as a valet or stuck as washing cars or whatever, is that you also have, and this is where Tyler's kind of all over the place because he also has the scene with a guy who works at the convenience store. Yeah. And he... Yep very violently and not the way you should do it, but inspires this guy to go back and become a veterinarian to mm -hmm. follow his dreams. Right. So there is, that's one of the messages too, right. Is right. You're not stuck unless you choose to be stuck. Right. It might be hard. It might suck for a while, but you can do what you want to do and be productive that way. And, it, and yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why Tyler is this kind of polar, he is polarizing 
because there's both that positive of like, hey, you can go to college and you can do what you want. Like, <laughs> sure. <laughs> or I'm going to kill you. Or I'm gonna, and then it's like, oh, that's not so good. And so... <laughs> a little too far. A little, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's the thought that counts, right? Uh, so that's, that's where like this film is a bit of a struggle to read, right? Because like you said, all the characters are kind of despicable in their own way. But at the same time, it's like there's things that are, are relatable where it's like everyone suffers from a little bit of that, that ennui, that boredom, that grind, right? So it's like, I think that's what people really grabbed onto. And that, that to me is like the most obvious reading, like the anti-consumerism, all that yeah. kind of stuff. And I think that's what the people who like the film gravitate towards. But then it's in this very violent package and what you make of that is i think how the readings differ i think that's how you know you get different outcomes out of this people making their own fight club you know that's a reading yeah. that I, I don't think is endorsed but i can see how people might get that absolutely uh anything else you want to talk about performance i think we unpacked it pretty well before we <laughs> move on to talk, yeah. do a little cameo on set design yeah uh, no, I, I'm pretty happy with with what we did. Uh, yeah, and me, me too. Um, we mentioned um, the uh, the basement down below already. I thought that was an interesting set. That it was very kind of wet and mold, wet and moldy in the Paper Street house. I thought it was interesting as a uh, I just jumped there subject, but that's fine because that's more interesting. Um, it's kind of like the decay on the outside is very much indicative of how you know. Ed Norton's character is feeling uh, so many interesting things in that house. Um, like with the the lamps and, and and things like that, and water just falling through that squeaky mattress. And he's okay with the mattress the first, which I've just always amazed. Every time I see that, I'm like, this is you right here. Okay, cool. Sits so in this springy mattress. Um, a lot of this was filmed in, in and around LA in, in real locations, which I, I always think that's cool. Um, you have that church gym where you had meets Robert Paulson, Bob. Meatloaf for the first time. Lots of airports. Um, I would I think about that a lot when, when I'm in and every time I'm in an airport, I'm like I think about that scene where he's jumping from airport and <laughs> Wait, single serving friends show up for you. <laughs> yeah, you know, just single serving. When I get the little meals on, on the airplane, I'm like single serving friends. That's just was something that uh, that stuck with me for a while. Um, it's a couple of things that I wanted to point out, props wise, in this one that I hadn't really paid that much attention to is the. Uh, the dozens of driver's licenses on the back of Tyler's door. Mm. Um, when this is when Ed Norton's looking for him at near the end, when he finds the, also the used airplane ticket stubs, which is another huge important prop. That's kind of where the things start to shift. And he starts to figure out what's going on, but it's interesting with those, those driver's licenses. It looks like, you know, that the guy that worked at the convenience store is not the only guy uh, who he is quote unquote, un inspired to uh, <laughs> pursue his dream. It's more than one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think just the difference between Ed Norton's apartment and then the house, yes. um, as indicative of the mind state of the characters. I mean, that's, I, to me, that's the kind of the big thing. Um, I, I don't know if it's ironic, uh, but I think it's kind of, they, they make a big point about using the human body fat as like explosive. Yes. And I'm not entirely sure what to make of that. Um, but I do think that it's like an interesting choice 
to use, you know, human material. I don't know. I don't know what to call it. Right. Right. But it's like there's definitely humanness involved in the bombs for taking out the banks and stuff. Yeah. We are not unique snowflakes. We're all the we're all the part of the same compost heap. You know, mm-hmm. it's that kind of nihilistic. I think that's that's a good catch. I think that you're you're seeing. I didn't think of it that far. That yeah, he's making soap out of it. Yes, and that's kind of a gross and funny thing. We're selling women's butts back to them. That's a great line as well. But yeah, <laughs> the, the next part of that is they're turning it into bombs. That they're right. they're like human bombs. That's great. Yeah. So, I mean, it's gross, and it's great that you pulled that out. But yeah, I think that's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, we mentioned, uh, I think we've hit just about all the characters. I mean, it's really, it's dominated very strongly by the three main leads. Yeah. Um, I always forget that Jared Leto's in this. Uh, me too. It's a really, really <laughs> early Jared Leto. And then he's not recognizable for, even no. when he, before he gets the crap kicked out of him, like with those the bleach blonde hair and that bleach eyebrows is just weird looking. I actually never put that together all the previous times I'd watched it. Yeah. And so I was watching it, uh, um, you know, for this show and i saw his name pop up on the credits before the movie started i was like oh i did not know he was in there so yeah it's really early it's early leto so yeah very very early yeah i did want to go just to go back real fast um the ikea catalog thing which again i'm significantly older than you so you probably don't remember this but where i was at in san diego when i when i saw this most of my friends and people that I knew were very much into the Ikea catalog. Getting the Ikea catalog was a thing that was big in 99. So, you know, it's, I don't think that it makes this movie necessarily stuck in that time period, but it's also very much of its time specifically in that aspect of consumerism. That's one thing that just grabbed me a lot. I'm like, yes, I have that Ikea catalog. It's right there. I could probably turn to that page and find the room that he's trying to create. So um, just another cool, uh, aspect of set decoration and i think it's worth noting that you know being or coming out at in 1999 right before you know uh, y2k and and stuff yes. like, that, that's kind of a meaningful time for this film to come out and i think the anti-consumerism is still very much like relevant today but you know 1999 2000s i mean it's it's a long time ago but it doesn't feel like a long time ago. <laughs> no. Yeah, this movie doesn't feel dated at no. all in, in any form. It's, I mean, it makes such a big point of avoiding gimmicky things anyway. Like you wouldn't, you don't really see cell phones or, I mean, you see a copy machine, but that's basically There's still copy it. machines. <laughs> yeah, they don't look that much different than they did then. So yeah, yeah it, it feels very timeless in a lot of ways. And I think that's part of the brilliance of, of the production that they, they Mary made, they made sent, uh, made a point of, of keeping it that way mm-hmm. and kind of dating it, you know, with the, you talk about the grain and all that stuff that it made it so unique that it doesn't really need to fit in any particular time period. Yeah. I actually thought it was interesting. You, you know, bringing up the, the DVD of it and like, is it worth getting the Blu-ray or does it, does it add some character to kind of have it on DVD? I was like, you know, for this film, I could actually see that. I don't know. I'll probably still buy it anyway, just because it'll last longer. But <laughs> what are you gonna do? Uh, any uh, anything else you want to mention for Hero's Journey world building, or we just go down to final thoughts? I think, I, I think for of... yeah, I, I honestly I think I've covered a lot of my thoughts 
for the film. I, I, I think it's like a very interesting movie that it's like I said, it's it, there's so many different readings you can get from it that it's one that's fun to revisit every once in a while and to kind of think about like what it's trying to say because it's still kind of a mystery and I've seen it several times, but that's kind of the fun. That's part of the fun of, of rewatching this film. Yeah, I agree. So I did, and I did try to come up with the theme, right? We talked about this in our last episode or a couple episodes ago, rather uh, the Batman v Superman episode. Um, the theme's not a word, right? It's a sentence. And so, Trying to figure out what the message actually is is very much a challenge, but I'm going to try. This is what this is what I got is is that it's not about offering solutions. It's about showing the importance of feeling something and not numbing out, not giving up. Whatever that's going to be, is find a way to connect with the world. Yeah, that's what I got. No, yeah. I I think that's a very very valid. Uh, theme to get from it and i can definitely see how that would fit i don't think i when you brought that up i was kind of wrecking my brain and it's a very difficult film to try and come up with like a single theme <laughs> so i but i do think that's like a good one for the whole yeah. the whole movie yes i do yeah. think that works really well yeah and it's okay that it doesn't have a single theme because yeah. i mean it's very interesting it's a it's an interesting movie. It's a fun movie to watch, and especially guys, if you haven't seen the movie in a long time, because it is. I mean, it's a twenty three year old movie at this point. It's absolutely worth a rewatch. You'll see things you forgot, see things that you never saw before, and uh, hopefully, we sh shed some light on some of those things as well. Yeah. So as we close, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you would like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook, email us at readingbetweenreels at gmail.com, or use the SpeakPipe app on our website. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast catcher. We'd love to hear your feedback, and it really helps us get the word out about the podcast, guys. Also, if you haven't yet, join our Facebook group. It's a safe place to share your thoughts and discuss all things related to movies. And one last thing, our next episode will be a review of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Send us an email or voicemail about your favorite moments from the film, and we'll share them on the next episode.